Hey everyone, Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. And what you're about to hear is a somewhat extended version of a show that I broadcast on Sunday, September 18th, 2011. It was kind of a warm-up act to KOSP's coverage of the Monterey Jazz Festival on that day. And I aired an interview with one of the musicians on the festival program, Santa Cruz homeboy made good, Donnie McCaslin. He grew up and got his musical start right here in our area, and then moved on to the East Coast, where he made his mark on the jazz world at large. Today he's a widely respected and truly formidable tenor sax player based in New York. Donnie and I talked about his beginnings and his development as a musician and his return to the Monterey Jazz Festival. Take a listen. Well, Donnie, thank you for coming in right before the uh, Monterey Jazz Festival. Well, thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I've been uh, thinking about your, your whole career and looked around for the earliest recording that includes you that I could find. Okay. This is what I came up with. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's a lazy afternoon. Jim Lewis. Mm-hmm. On vocals. Yeah. And the tulip trees are blooming. And there's not another human in view. But us two. It's a lazy afternoon. Now, we don't have you soloing there, but you are back there in the horn section, I guess. I guess so. I heard something rushing a little bit. That might have been me. (laughs) According to the credits on the album, you are there on tenor sax. This being um, 1983 when this was recorded, you'd be about 16 years old or so? That's right. Yeah, Yeah. I was 16. I remember. Unfolding like a rose If you hold my hand And the sit real still as it grows. And some of our audience might recognize that band, uh, Warmth, the band that was really Santa Cruz's signature jazz band, played outdoors on the Pacific Garden Mall in front of the old Cooper House, the most famous building in town that uh, eventually fell to the wrecking ball after the 1989 earthquake. But for a long time, Warmth, which was led by your dad, Don McCaslin, on, on vibes and piano, was... I think about as much a mascot of Santa Cruz as any yeah, <laughs> any musical yeah. group could be. And, and you grew up basically hearing and playing uh, with that band, yeah? That's right. Um, my parents were divorced when I was quite young, and, and I lived with my mother up in Happy Valley. And I would see my father one day a week, and, and basically he would pick me up on Sunday morning. We'd drive down to the Pacific Garden Mall, and we had this ritual of getting bear claws at there was there was a bakery at the head of the mall uh which i don't remember the name of it but they had great great bear claws and we'd get these bear claws and then continue down and he would park and, and we would go and and set up his instruments and then he had a he had a he had just a chair on the bandstand that i would sit on and i don't know how old i was robert i was maybe eight or nine and that went on for a few years i went and i would just sit there while they played and as I got a little bit older, I was able to roam around the mall on my own. But I was so fortunate to be able to hear so much music 
at such a young age. When did you start actually gigging with your dad's band, Warmth? Um, I would say, let's see, I started playing saxophone at age 12. Um, I really started playing with him when I was around 15 or 16. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. About the time that recording we heard. Yeah, so. that's when I when I really started kind of being on the gig pretty consistently. Um, in the liner notes to the, to the album from which I, I took that little um, excerpt we just heard, um, your dad wrote the, uh, the liner notes, um, and he was describing his first gig playing in front of the Cooper House in Santa Cruz in 1971. And he says, on Cooper Street, some cat was sculpting a gigantic lion, and in the alley off Pacific, that's Pacific Avenue, some other cat was making a stained glass skylight. And what I want to ask you is, what is it like to have a dad who actually uses the word cat like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my father um, was a big fan, and still is a big fan of Lord Buckley. Yeah. And as you probably know, he produced uh, uh, various bebop dramas um, that I was, I was involved in some of those and a lot of local Santa Cruz musicians were. Um, so that was definitely part of the beat generation and that's part of the culture that he grew up in or that he embraced. And so I, you know, I always, I always, um, I always thought my dad was pretty cool. <laughs> Lord Buckley, for those who don't know, is this kind of jazz hipster poet, um, uh, what, what, how, how would you describe him? I, I mean, I think I, that's that's how I would describe yeah. him: jazz hipster poet, and, and maybe throw in the word beatnik. Well, let's uh, let's hear another recording made with warmth. This uh, is the very next one I could find with you on it. Okay, uh, we're gonna have to jump ahead ten years though, and a lot <laughs> has happened in that span of time to your playing. I think. I remember this. Yeah. This is actually recorded not too far from here. You mean near the KUSP studio where yeah. we're doing this interview? Yeah. This is a song that my father wrote for Benny Marquez, who's playing percussion on this. Yeah, you were about 27 at this point. Is that right? I, I don't remember, to be 1993. honest 1993. Okay. Okay. Let's catch a little bit of the sax solo on this. A very well-educated jazz musician there. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about what happened in those, uh, those 10 years between the first recording we heard when you were maybe 16 and this one, where you're 27 and obviously a very confident improviser and Oh, with echoes of Coltrane, and mm. who else would you say is in that mix there? Well, just listening to that, I, I can hear um, definitely that I was starting to check out Sonny Rollins yeah. a lot, which was sort of a transformative period for me uh, developmentally. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, as you said, just so much happened in those 10 years. I mean, from the time I was 16 to 18, I was still living in Santa Cruz and, and not only playing more regularly with my father's band and getting a lot of experience on the bandstand with that, but I was, I'd started my own group with um, Kenny Wallison. We're the same age and, and Kenny's a great drummer who now lives in New York and plays with um, Bill Frizzell wow. and uh, John Zorn and Steve Bernstein mm. and, 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 and others. So we started a group, we, it was actually called the Jazz Animals. My father named us. <laughs> and uh, Kenny Carr was a guitar player and, and Kenny um, went on to play with Ray Charles for 10 years and lives in DC, is in the Armed Services Band now. Um, Anders Swanson was playing bass who now lives in LA and is a professional musician. Brian Henriksen played uh, keyboards who lives over the hill and, and plays. We started, um, playing after my father's group at the Cooper house. You know, if you want to talk about on the job experience where, you know, I would be there from noon to six with my father's band then take a half hour break. And then we would start at six 30 with, with the group that we had the jazz animal. So I was getting a lot of playing in. And, in those uh, years. and Santa Cruz small town though it is, it sounds like you weren't deprived of uh, exposure to really good musicians and people to work with. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And um, there was a great, um, salsa scene here. Yeah. I was playing in a, in a in a really fun band called Los Schleppos Tipicos <laughs> uh, with Steve Wilson on trombone and Nito Reyes on trumpet. And, and it was a great group. Stephanie Gelman played flute. And I was getting an introduction to Latin music, Latin jazz through playing tunes like Viva Marquez with my father, the sort of Cal Jader-esque Latin right, jazz. Right. But then to actually play in a salsa band where I was one of, you know, five, six, seven horns. It, that was a, another experience that was great. And, and we would play, John Livingston played bass in the band who's been involved in Kowumba for years and who owns Logos Records. Charles Levin was playing timbales, who, who, who's a wonderful drummer. So um, it was just, just great to be in an environment where there was so much opportunity to play. And as you said, with so many excellent musicians and not only straight ahead jazz or R&B or this or that, it was sort of just in a way a melting pot, which is incredible when you consider the size of Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. um, that there was so much going on at that period of time. And I was so lucky to be here. Um, and, and here's another thing, which I kind of touched on, you know, so, playing with my father, playing with older musicians, um, but also I had peers. I wasn't just this one kind of kid playing in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's Kenny Wallison, who's now a major force in the jazz world. We're playing together. Jeff Ballard, who grew up in Scotts Valley, a couple years older than us, but he was around. I mean, there was so many young, talented people. And part of that was um, the great educational system that was in place and then you had the Kowumba Jazz Center, which started in the mid-70s. Um, we should say for people listening outside our area, Kowumba is a nationally known jazz club here in Santa Cruz. So you had the exposure to, oh, you know, who's who of uh, working jazz musicians coming through town. And I can re- I remember a lot of those concerts and a lot of those artists vividly from seeing them at Kowumba, getting a chance to hear the masters in my hometown, you know. It was not like I had to drive to San Francisco or mm-hmm. San Jose to hear these folks. I mean, on a Monday night, you go down and there's Cedar Walton with Billy Higgins and Bob Berg and, you know, maybe Sam Jones on bass. I can't quite remember who's playing bass, but just incredible, just incredible. So um, at some point, uh, I guess maybe in your, in your late teens, you got a full scholarship to the Berklee School of Music in Boston, maybe the world's most famous jazz conservatory. 
Yeah, yeah. What had happened was um, I went to Aptos High School, and it was a it was a great band to be in. A lot of really talented players, and the director was great. We played all this Ellington music, and we would go around the state and do these jazz band competitions. And they often would give soloist awards, often with a thousand dollar or fifteen hundred dollar scholarship to Berklee College of Music. So I had accumulated enough by the end of my senior year of high school to pay for my first year of college. And then in my first year, they gave me a full scholarship. And Berkeley was a great experience. One thing is you can imagine, you know, you you come from a place like Santa Cruz. And so by the time of my senior year I'm playing, I'm doing all this stuff and it's all great. Um, but then you go to Berkeley and there's 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 just a lot of really talented people on every instrument. Well, you're going to, you know, a, a real mecca for aspiring jazz musicians. You're coming from a small town way out on, on the uh, West Coast. But given what you just said, you had a pretty strong background coming in. You you weren't really from the sticks, jazz-wise. Right. I would agree. So how was it for you? Did you feel a lot of places? Did you feel right at home? I would say it was, it was, a, it was a mixed boat, you know. Uh-huh. In some ways, um, I felt that I had a... I had um, a lot of experience, uh-huh. as you mentioned, going in, and that that helped me in situations where you just get up and play, and I felt like, well, hey, I can do that. I've been doing this for years, mm. you know? But it also certainly was intimidating and humbling when you just realize how much there is to learn mm. and how there's a lot of other people who, who, who are really talented and are pushing you. And at that you age, know. people tend to be a little competitive. They're all trying to prove themselves. Yeah? Absolutely. And I So was it like was... a shark tank or... Let me think how to describe it. I mean, I think, yeah, I think I was, I, I think it was very competitive. Yeah. And, 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 and it was, it was a shark tank in the sense that, you know, the, the best players were the ones that would get the slots. Like if Chick Corea comes to Berkeley as a guest artist and they put together a student ensemble, who's going to play in the saxophone chairs? It's the, the, the <laughs> folks that the top, the teachers think are the top players. So it's, yeah. it was, it was competitive for sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Um, now, now, while at Berkeley, isn't that where you met Gary Burton? Yeah, and and um, what happened was he put together um, a student ensemble to play on a jazz cruise, and I guess it was my junior year. Um, I was selected to do that, and that was when I first met him. And during the rehearsals for that, I was really nervous because I was used to a different style of playing than what Gary was. Gary was having us play very short solos and and over tunes that had a lot of harmonic movement. I was used to playing over harmonic movement, but I was used to playing longer solos and really stretching out. So he was really, it was kind of, I was out of my comfort zone, I would say. And I was also just nervous because he was Gary Burton and the most famous jazz musician I'd probably encountered at that point in my one life. Of, one of the absolute all-time greats on vibraphone. Absolutely. Yeah. And and continues to play, play yeah. great. Um, so I... I remember the first gig we got, we flew down to Miami, spent the night in a hotel. We get on this boat, the SS Norway, all these famous jazz musicians there. And we start, we're one of the first groups that plays and, you know, the boat's going up and down and (laughs) it's a sort of surreal thing. I feel a little seasick, but then we start playing and I start playing and I remember feeling like, okay, we're playing a tune. We're in front of people. I've done this. And I was in my comfort zone, and I and I think I, you know, my playing probably reflected the uh, fact that I was I was a lot more comfortable. And Gary mentioned to me after, like it seemed like I had it had made a big impression on him. The difference between how I performed in the rehearsal and then this first performance that I was so. And then he actually spoke to the fact that he could tell I'd had a lot of experience playing with my father because because it really came out on the bandstand, et cetera, et cetera. So that was my experience my junior year, and then 
um, I guess it was during my senior year that the cruise happened again. And then not too long after that, he offered me the position in his, in his quintet. And you stayed with him for what, four years or so? Yeah, four years. And, and, uh, maybe the third year I moved to New York beginning of 91, maybe January 91, or it might've been 1990, but I moved to New York and, um, and then, yeah, my tenure with his group ended somewhere in that first year of, of my life in New York City. Did you record with him? I recorded one song that was, he was on GRP at the time, and it was on a, the GR, a GRP Christmas album, and the song was O Tannenbaum. O Tannenbaum, well, what do you know? I'm going to play that right now. Would that be you? <laughs> that is me. <laughs> so you were just out of college. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a it was a, a thrilling experience. You know, we record this at Clinton recording studio, which is one of the biggest recording studios in New York City at that time. And just to drive down there from Boston and get out and think, you know, gee, we're gonna, you know, do we're gonna cut a track here and it's kind of realizing it childhood dream of mine you know to to record the major jazz artists so it was it was it was it was quite a quite a day you really were on the fast track then i mean um from santa cruz to berkeley college of music to gary burton's ensemble in just a few years yeah yeah wow well the home folks are are certainly proud of you i know that (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) what did your dad say to you about your career i mean he must have been pretty amazed at how fast you yeah, he says to me. He said to me. He does, he's never known anyone who's 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 um, gone as far as I have in the jazz world, or who's been as successful as I have um, as a jazz artist. So he's he's exceedingly proud of me, and has been for a long time. It's not just in the last few years that he's he's been that way. He's always been really um, always on the edge of his seat, wanting to hear what the news is about my gigs and tours and stuff and he's just been a been a really strong supporter i can imagine well i'm going to skip ahead a few years here to your first album the first album that you you know under your leadership uh this is exile and discovery and uh this may seem maybe an odd choice but i really like this piece because it's you unaccompanied uh just you the saxophone uh this is etude number four. Oh yeah A 
little bit there from Etude Number no. 4 with Donnie McCaslin from his first album, Exile and Discovery, from uh, 1998, right, Donnie? Yeah. And Donnie is my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Donnie is performing at this year's Monterey Jazz Festival coming up shortly right here on KUSP, and we're talking about his career. Uh, Donnie, I, I wanted to play that. Not only does it show off a you know a real supple sound and... Uh, uh, a lyricism in, in in there, but the 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 fact that it's an etude, it's a study, and I, listening to your music, I get the sense that you are just such a serious student of jazz. I mean, Thank you. Guy, I strive to be. Yeah, I, I mean, strive to be. Well, it's interesting about that. Um, I hadn't heard that in a long time. It was really it was neat to hear that. Um, that came at a period in my life where I was playing a lot of Argentinian folkloric music. Really? Yeah, and actually. It, it my introduction to that was through Gary Burton. He had, when I was in Gary's group, he did a record with Astor Piazzolla mm. um, that I loved. And during that time, we also with his quintet, we we went to Argentina for a week and did some concerts and did some clinics and stuff. And I fell in love with the culture down there and just loved the tango music and of course the food and it was just a tremendous life experience. But I got back to New York and. So had stopped playing with Gary, but but still continued to listen to tango music, and then started playing with um, was a composer from Argentina who had moved to New York, Fernando Torres, and he started a group. And actually, we worked quite a lot for a period uh, in in the in the early to mid '90s, maybe four four or five years, and went to Argentina half dozen times. Went to Europe, did a lot of concerts in New York, and a lot of his music was based on this rhythm called the Chacarera, which is um, basically a rhythm where you can feel the three pulse and the two pulse at the same time. Oh. Like, so um, a lot of his songs were based on that. And then this, this, this etude I played was actually written by Astor Piazzolla. And it was uh, from a, from a group of etudes that he had written, and I, I had just been practicing um, to try to capture the feeling of playing that mu- that folkloric music as authentically as I could. Mm. You know, it's funny. I know Piazzolla's music, but I didn't recognize that as one of his. Well, I don't. You know what, Robert? I think it's because <laughs> I don't know if he ever recorded that. I think he might have just written uh-huh. that for as a flute study or as a uh-huh. violin study or something. I don't know. I don't know that wow. it, that it's been recorded. Wow. Um, but back to my question about you as a student of, yes. of jazz, was that something you did from the beginning? Uh, you know, I, I get the sense that you have really applied yourself to learning the whole history of jazz, of, of sort of absorbing into your sound, all of your mm-hmm. predecessors. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I right in, in thinking that? Yeah, I think the, the way I describe it is, um, I mean, first of all, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. You know, I still feel like I'm, um, listening to people who I had skipped over, like Chewberry, for example. Mm. I hadn't really listened to Chewberry seriously until the last year or two. Um, uh, Frankie Trumbauer, you know, again, somebody who I, I hadn't really listened to until more recently. When I was younger, I was I was really um, in love with the modern sound. Um, so an example, my generation, as you can imagine, it was, the, the tenor hero was Michael Brecker. So as a teenager in Santa Cruz, that's Michael Brecker, John Coltrane. That was what I wanted to listen to. Right, and that's right. what I wanted to play like. <laughs> and I remember, I remember, you know, people would say, oh, you need to check out, you know, Coleman Hawkins and stuff. And I remember, you know, I would listen to those records a little bit and I, I didn't enjoy it 
at that period. I was young, you know, really young. And I didn't, I didn't really like it that much, but, um, I got to at a certain point in Berkeley, I, you know, I realized or just post Berkeley that I sounded so much like that Michael Brecker school of playing and, and, you know, I, Bob Berg, Steve Grossman, Dave Lieben, that kind of whole, that thing, it was such a big part of my playing that I really needed to, um, I really needed to study the tradition and to really expand. And so from that point forward, I, I mentioned Sonny Rollins earlier. I, I think yeah. I, this encounter with really, really feeling the incredible, ma- you know, majesty of Sonny Rollins playing it completely was like a sea change for me. Mm. And so, I, so I have I studied a lot of um, Sonny Rollins and and Joe Henderson and Wayne Shorter and Stan Getz and Lester Young and um, and 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 of course people on other instruments. A lot of Herbie and Chick and. Freddie Hubbard, but so yeah, I'm. I still feel like I'm. I'm sometimes filling in the blanks, but but I but I do fully embrace the history of the music because it's just incredible. You know, for example, um, uh, there's a song of Coleman Hawkins that is was recorded by Fletcher Henderson. I think it's called Queer Notions. It's on that Ken Burns CD, but it's incredible. Ken Burns history of Ken jazz. Ken history yeah. of jazz. You know, just yeah. the thing, and it was like 19, like you know, 30 something. Um, so, yeah, I love the history of the music, and I'm just always, I always feel that there's so much to learn, and, and I'm hungry for it. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned Michael Brecker is a huge influence, and uh, you ended up taking over for Michael Brecker in the ensemble Steps Ahead, didn't you? Like in uh, 1991, something like that? Well, to be chronologically correct, I guess they, they ended for a while after Michael left. And then it reformed with a Norwegian saxophone player, Bendik. Ah. And they did a couple records on Mike Maneri's label, NYC. Then Alex Foster did the gig for, I'm guessing, about a year. And then I took over. Okay, I got it. So it wasn't like uh, exit Michael Brecker, enter Donnie McCaslin. Right. But you did end up taking the tenor position that he had at one point held I in the did. band. I did. Yeah. I did. And I did it for, you know, maybe about three years yeah. in the mid-90s and then again more <laughs> recently. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So, I mean, I'm just thinking this is your career. If I look at it, it's like these kind of amazing things. You know, you ended up playing with Gary Burton, who actually played your dad's instrument, Vibes. Yes. You end up playing in a position that Michael Brecker had earlier held, a guy who you had emulated when you were coming up. That's right. And with... Mike Maneri, who's also a vibes player. That's right. Yeah, a lot of vibe players in your life. Yeah. A lot of vibe players in my life, <laughs> um, and and that's a good thing. Um, and that that gig was an, was an incredible opportunity for me. It really was because, uh, as you can imagine, I'm trying to think how to say this, you know, some of the solos that Michael played on some of those famous steps tunes like Pools and Oops are just iconic at least to me, and I think to my generation. Mm-hmm. Those are iconic solos. So to be playing those very same songs and to be faced with the challenge of, okay, I, you know, here I'm in the situation and it won't feel right if I'm just emulating what Michael did. Plus, I couldn't do it as good as he did anyway. But the question being, how do I find my own way of playing on this tune that's going to be convincing and have a lot of, um, a lot of substance to it? And it was a real great opportunity for me to try to find my own voice as an improviser. Hmm. And it was, it was a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Well, well having studied all of the, the greats, or so many of the greats, I guess there would be a danger that you'd be stuck sort of bouncing from one to the other. Uh, yes. At what point did you get to develop a sound that you think is particularly yours? Well, 
I would say that it's it's a process and and um, the, a process that continues to this day. But I think I've always been aware of wanting to find my own voice from an early age. And, you know, I've, as I mentioned, you know, you go through periods where I mentioned the period where I felt like I really sound like Michael Brecker and then other periods where there was other players who, who I, you know, Sonny Rollins and Wayne Shorter and, and whatnot, John Coltrane. Um, but I think that for me, it was, I was trying to be open to what was exciting to me about music. If something would register as feeling interesting and perhaps unique. Um, an example would be, as a, a student at Berkeley, I had to play my scales in these wide intervals to to pass my proficiency. And I remember feeling like, wow, I like the way these wide intervals sound. And um, Hey, you know what the, the next uh, piece I wanted to play was? Recommended Tools. Does that fit the, the picture? Oh, that absolutely does fit the picture. <laughs> that abs- That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Let's play it right now. Then we can talk about wide intervals. Okay. Great, great. This is recommended tools from the album of the same name from 2008. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was wanting to write a blues, and just I was experimenting with the interval of a, of, of a perfect fifth, and just different ways of of basically transposing it and moving it around. And um, yeah, that's just sort of one way that I felt like working on this interval, different intervalic ideas, has helped me to to find a way, or I guess to, to help, it's helped me to develop an intervalic language that, that I, I get excited about, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, n- another thing about, you know, the question you'd asked about developing your own sound is I remember Gary Burton had talked about that when I was young and talked about, um, that composition was really, uh, an important way or, or a great way for one to find one's voice as, as a musician. And I felt like that's been true for me over the years that I've, I've felt like I've, you know, found my way sometimes um, by just writing the tunes and not trying to make them something that, letting them be what they're going to be and not trying to say, okay, I'm going to write this kind of tune or that kind of tune, right. but just being honest about what am I hearing uh-huh. and writing it and going from there. You know, another thing that comes to mind is I've been talking about Sonny Rollins. I think, um, you know, coming from the background with all this jazz education, that I come up with and you, know, you analyze things a lot and it's this scale over this chord and this and this and you know I think for a while I was thinking well how can I really but how can I truly improvise and really be in the moment as an improviser and not just be regurgitating all the things I've worked yeah, out in exactly, practice room yeah. and all that um, and for me the, the, that was a major part of what the what Sonny Rollins 
this playing has done to me because um, he's just such a master at thematic development and taking the simplest theme. There's a there's an interview in Downbeat magazine, I think, from the 60s where he refers to himself as a blue-collar improviser. And that really resonated with me because I, I think I had been, you know, thinking so much about, well, you know, this synthetic chord and this synthetic scale and, you know, these really kind of, you know, modern harmonic concepts, but, but I really wanted to get back to, like, you know, jazz is really about the feeling, you know, and the swing and the... And, and how can I be, how can I really improvise and, and not be to not be worrying about trying to, trying to, um, you know, put in this hip thing or whatever, but mm-hmm. just really play mm-hmm. and embracing the idea of thematic development through Sonny Rollins um, and Gary Burton, who used to talk about that when I was in his band years so, prior to so that. So when you say thematic development, you mean melodic? Uh, you I know, think, I think about it both, really? uh, sorry to cut you off. I think yeah. about both, both melodically. Uh-huh. So in the melodic context, you know, the intervalic thing would play right into that. Okay, mm-hmm. I mentioned sixths earlier. Okay, so I'm going to play with the interval of the sixth, and I'm going to improvise with that. I'm going to stack the sixth when I'm practicing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can manipulate just one interval or a group of intervals, but then also rhythmic mm-hmm. development, so mm-hmm. key. And, and I think there was a period of my life in the 90s where I just basically turned my back on studying harmonic ideas and melodic ideas, frankly, and just studied rhythm, studied um, Afro-Cuban uh, folkloric music, and and then, which is a never-ending pursuit, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, uh, African, um, African, some African folkloric music, and then uh, Afro-Peruvian music, um, we'd already talked about Argentina, um, Brazil, and, and all that stuff, and and really kind of embracing the, that kind of language and just studying that for years. And, and, and it really tra- it changed my playing a lot. Have you studied uh, Bata? Uh, yes. Not actually playing them. But, but the, the but, structure. But, but and the all structures. That. That's and, pretty uh, fascinating. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to stay on the, uh, the subject of your own development. And I found an interesting way we could discuss it, which is to play a piece that you included on your uh, 1998 album, Exile and Discovery, and then you included again on your 2008 album, uh, Recommended Tools. It's a Billy Strayhorn piece. It's called Isfahan. And I want to just play a little bit of the opening from the earlier version and then skip ahead 10 years to your later rendition of the same tune. So Donnie McCaslin in 1998 playing Isfahan, and here's Donnie McCaslin in 2008 playing the same tune.
it's rare to get a great um, example of sort of early or later with the the musician right here to talk to them about it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah. resist. I'm. I mean, tell me wh- first of all why you chose to re-record that piece because you don't normally do that. Yeah, I, I would say that. Um, actually, um, Gary Burton used to play that song when I was in, when I was in his band, but I would I would never play on it. I would leave the stage. So I heard it um, in my twenties for the first time and, and I always thought, man, this is a great tune. And then, um, and when I got the Duke Ellington record, I can't remember when I got the Duke Ellington record, the Far East Suite as the incredible Johnny Hodges mm. playing that mm. song, which is, um, one of my all time favorites. So, um, I think I, you know, the first time I recorded it cause on Exile and Discovery, I thought, okay, here's my chance to play this tune mm-hmm. that I've heard for years. And then 10 years later making the trio record, um, as I was assembling the music, all the rest of the songs were original tunes, and I thought it'd be good to have a standard. And there, and I was lacking a ballad like this. There's another ballad on the record, but it's kind of a freer piece. So I thought this would be a good thing to add in terms of the programming. And it would be good to have a ballad. And I thought, you know, I I love the song so much. And and as you could tell, the 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 the, the first version is quartet with piano. The trio record obviously sounds piano, so I thought this is a chance for me to, to to play this again in the trio format and see what I can do with it. Ah, well, let's um, again since we're going to do this little comparison here, let's let's just play a little bit of the early and then the late again, and then we'll talk about some of the contrasts. So here is 1998. <laughs> Maybe it's because I know, but I just hear more maturity in that later recording. Oh no, I, I definitely agree. You know, when I when I hear the first one, I, I do hear the influence of that, of all that sort of tango music I would I've been playing in terms of how some of the expressions are sort of a little almost over the top, you know. But it's also I think the youth, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 everything and, and it feels to me you know the second one is is, is it's it's more relaxed it's so and subtle little, yeah it's more su- it's subtler it's 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 quieter but the, it feels more focused i mean some of those notes just whisper you know yeah but there's and, a but there's a like a, a stronger base of sound exactly yeah. and and it feels it just yeah, it the just tone is just so rich yeah it, yeah i mean did that come naturally or did you work to achieve that sort of that warmth and that that depth in that in that tone you know from your tenor yeah i well i i certainly 
spent many hours practicing long tones and overtones and, and worked on my sound for a long time. Um, I don't work on it much these days, but, but, um, I've certainly spent, spent a lot of time focusing on that, you know, trying to, trying to really get a, a seamless sound throughout the instrument to, to have strong pitch throughout the instrument and, 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 and whatnot. So it was definitely something I focused on for many years. Was there just a little bit of, um, rasp isn't quite the word, but there's a little bit more texture in the sound. Too. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a little condensation on the reed that you but hear. It, I, I like that. I like it too. I mean, yeah. it reminds me of like Joe Henderson or something uh-huh. that I listen to a yeah. lot. And, and kind and of a it, wet sound, yeah. a wet sound. And it's very human to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not about making it all so pure that all the humanness is taken out of it. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, uh, you're here on the occasion of the Monterey Jazz Festival um, for 2011, um, but you had played going all the way back to high school in the Monterey Jazz Festival. That's right. Um, the the youth band that's now called the Next Generation Orchestra, I think. Uh, that's when, right. When yeah. I was when I was in high school, it was the Monterey Jazz Festival High School All Star Band. Right. And it was only students from California when I was a student when I was in high school. I guess that's changed, and now it's students from across the country. It was an incredible experience because we would go down a week prior to the festival and we would stay in the travel lodge, which is right across the street from the festival grounds. And we'd rehearse hours and hours every day with Bill Berry. And then he would have guest artists like, um, Clark Terry would play with us, Bob Brookmeyer, Marshall Salal one year. And just to be rehearsing that kind of music as a 16, 17 year old who had, didn't, wasn't really aware of it was, was tremendous. And then, also just to be there and see the festival sort of come together through the week. And then the arrival of people like James Moody, you know, I was thinking about him. He was such a gracious person and I I met him at the festival and um, I don't know if I was 16 or 17 the first time I met him and he was so nice to me. Mm. Well, well this year you're playing with the new generation jazz orchestra, which um, is led by uh, Paul Contos. Yeah. That's correct. Who you studied with when you were young. He's a, Another sax player from our area. Yeah, I'm Very so well glad. I'm so glad you mentioned that because yeah, Paul was was my teacher. Um, I guess I was about maybe 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. I studied with him, and it was a, it was a great experience. And now I'm coming back, and he's leading the band, and I'm going to play with him. It's it's special for me. I love Paul. He has been in this community since I was born, and 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 so it's. Uh, it's just special for me to come back and get a chance to play with them in this context. Well, Donnie, it has been fantastic talking to you. And I, I want to finish up here by letting you choose what gets played next. Um, want to pick something off uh, one of your albums? Great, great. Um, I was thinking we would play the song Energy Generation off my newest record, Perpetual Motion. I, I chose it because this, um, this newest record for me taps into the roots of growing up in Santa Cruz in the Bay Area. And as I mentioned before, my my father's group uh, played a mixture of Cal Jader-esque Latin jazz, great American songbook standards, and also some sort of kind of R&B stuff. Like the song, you, the first song you played, Lazy Afternoon, stuff like that, <laughs> kind of funky um, stuff. So I was, I was getting exposure to that music that way. Also, Paul Jackson, bass player from the Headhunters, was living in Santa Cruz when I was a teenager. Herbie Hancock's headhunters. Herbie Hancock's headhunters. Yeah. Um, and I had I was in a band that Paul had uh, when I was 16, 17. Uh, he had a band in Santa Cruz called Shirley Out. And um, I didn't really know who Paul was, but 
I knew he was a very famous musician and playing with him was great because he was just just a really creative force. Um, so also at that time, I was getting exposed to Tower Power, which is a, a legendary Bay Area. I mean, I probably don't have to say anything about that, Tower, just Tower Power. <laughs> so there's, there's a particular song of, of theirs called You've Got to Funkifies, which is just, I love it. It's so greasy and so funky. And I thought, you know, I like to write a tune kind of like inspired by that. I'm, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to be my take on it, but coming from that feeling. And the bass player on this new record, Tim LaFave, is very influenced by Paul Jackson. And so I thought this would be a good example of, of, of uh, you know, something that came out of my formative experience in, in the Bay Area. And it's, um, this is Energy Generation. Energy generation it is, and thank you so much, Donnie, for thank joining you. me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Looking forward to hearing you play in just a short while. Thanks. Tenor sax player Donnie McCaslin recorded prior to his performance at the 2011 Monterey Jazz Festival. For more of KUSP's coverage of the Monterey Jazz Festival, including interviews, photos, and information, go to KUSP.org. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, your host. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, visit us at our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>